So please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior and for revealing yourself in your fullness through him. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word today, that we would be ministered to and be your ministers to share the goodness of Christ through the way that we live. Lord, uh, just search our hearts. Show us how, how far we are from you in our flesh and uh, how to have fellowship with you through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We just love you, and we are, we are so grateful and rejoice to be called your own, your beloved, in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 2 is where we'll be. We place such a high value on knowledge, don't we? Experience and training and experts. and I mean, knowledge in your diploma or your degrees can be the difference between getting the job or not getting the job. Uh, when we're unwell, we go to a doctor who's trained for years and studied broadly, and then, then we're sent to a specialist who has their area of expertise, and you have judges and barristers and uh, these people who have studied law and they understand the due process and, and, and a lot of things that I have no idea about. Most of us don't know a lot, but I mean, even like laying tile. You can go to Bunnings and learn how to lay tile or uh, lay carpet, do all kinds of things. And so there's knowledge on offer. You have uh, no, great knowledge on the internet, the illusion of truth everywhere. Uh, when you have that internet connection and we can trawl social media or news websites to stay in the know, we always want to hear about the new thing and, and share the new thing. Have you ever you made that connection? Like, we like to hear about something interesting, and we like to talk about things that are interesting, things that interest us. And as important as knowledge is, it's good as Christians to know there is a danger associated with growing in knowledge that it tends to puff up with pride. We feel a bit superior because we know something. And we almost can assume because we know it that it, we're actually living in light of that truth. And we can make growing in knowledge our end rather than the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Because we want to know more, we can almost lose sight of him and how important he is. And our lack of knowledge, or the thing, because we have knowledge, we struggle sometimes um, to trust God. We can limit him by our limited knowledge rather than believing him and keeping things simple. And like, you know, I don't know all the answers, but I trust Jesus Christ. I am complete in him. Paul's writing to the Colossians. He has great concern for their faith, uh, that they would fall from the faith, that they would depart from the faith because of worldly philosophies or uh, deceits of the enemy, that they'd be tangled up with debates that would just divide rather than unite. And let's not think that deceptions are always outside the church. Often they can be inside the church, right? Paul said that he knew that wolves would come into the flock amongst the flock, right? That's when the wolf does damage, not when it's howling on a mountain somewhere, but when it's in the fold and it's slinking about looking for that sheep to grab. That's when it's dangerous. And so he's saying these philosophies, these mindsets, these traditions, they're among you, 
that you've been impacted by them, and I want to make sure that you don't leave the faith. You don't depart because you are deceived. And the lies haven't changed. The, The old deceptions and lies that Satan used then, these philosophies and worldly ways of thinking, he uses them to, the day, to this day, just like fishermen keep using nets. They've been using nets for thousands of years. Why? Because they're effective. And the lies that Satan tells and the way he appeals to our flesh and our mind is still very effective. And so we must be on guard. It's not that the lies are so compelling, but we're really easy targets. We, we can fall for the silliest things. And we wonder, how did I fall for that? But we did. You know, it's like, click on this link to find more. You're like, why did I click on that link? There was no need for that. I knew that it was a scam. I knew I shouldn't have given my credit card details, but I did. Why did I do that? There's nothing new under the sun. We still can be deceived. And knowing that, we need to look to Christ and the word. We're always in trouble when we stray from the simple truth of the gospel and the word of God. So let's jump in, Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their heart may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul preached Jesus Christ, that he is God and the only way to know God. And he warned and taught all men. He exhorted them to stay grounded in the truth, not to depart from the hope of the gospel. There's this myth that's been perpetuated that the gospel is kind of like the fundamental, the the basic. It's kind of like the ABC song that you sing as kids that you kind of grow out of it at a point. And you move on to, from the milk, like we can look at the gospel as milk and like prophecy and eschatology or end times theology, that's the meat. But no, we are to hold on to that gospel, to live in light of the gospel, to keep being changed and challenged by the gospel, to, as we've received it, we're to live it out, forgiving others like Jesus has forgiven me, extending grace to others, just like he gave us grace, that We should share the truth that somebody shared with us that helped us to be born again. That Jesus made disciples, and we too should make disciples, not of ourselves or a church, but of Christ, to follow Jesus. The gospel that you, and it's so crazy, right? Uh, The gospel that you heard in kindy or when you were a child is the same gospel you need today to be saved, to know how to please God, to walk in those, to walk according to the light of the gospel. So you don't grow out of it. It's not like, oh, that's kid stuff. It's kid stuff. It's teenage stuff. It's adult stuff. It's old folks stuff. You need it all the way through. Like you cannot leave the gospel. He was very concerned about the churches in Coloss and Laodicea, people that he had never met. And I see the love of God there, where he's, he loves these people who have never met him, and yet he's writing this letter to say, I, and, and this is what I want from you. He's not selling anything. He says that their hearts would be encouraged being knit together in love. 
God provides encouragement when we need it, even from unexpected sources. And here's someone that they never knew. They had not met face-to-face, many of them. And yet he's writing this letter that they could be encouraged and knit together in the love of Christ. And then he says, And I also want you to attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. God gives us assurance of salvation, assurance of his love and forgiveness that cannot be bought with money or sacrifice. He gives us these things without price that we can know God and we can know that we know God and we can know that we're born again. And God has revealed himself in ways never known or understood before. And that's the use of this word mystery. It's something that was previously hidden, but now has been revealed. There's three mysteries that we've talked about from Colossians 1.24 to Colossians 2.3. So there's three mysteries that are discussed there. The first is that the church is the body of Christ composed of believing Jews and Gentiles together. And Jesus is the head, the Messiah. That Jesus dwells in us, the hope of glory. That Jesus dwells in you. And the unity of the Father and Jesus as one God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When I went to Israel, one thing that surprised me in speaking to Orthodox Jews is I assumed, because as a believer... Uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, that one of the qualifications to be Messiah is to be divine. But the Orthodox Jews say, oh no, he's just going to be a man. He's not God. The Messiah is definitely not God. I heard that time and time again. I was like, whoa, okay. So the bar is quite low. But Jesus is God. The fullness of God in human form. What an amazing revelation that the Messiah would be God. That God would come to us. That's that's quite a mystery. And then that he would be the head of both Jews and Gentiles in one body. That they'd be united together. Because the Jews always saw themselves as God's chosen people. And rightly so. God chose them out of all the nations. And yet there were many from from another fold that he's called. Us Gentiles to come to him and to be part of him, part of his body. Then to discover that God dwells in us by faith. The Jews were, they understood that there's this temple. God's presence dwells in that holy place. We we look towards that temple when we pray because that's where God's presence is. It was like a place on the map where God dwelt. You knew he was there. That's where you offered sacrifices. But he's saying God dwells in you the hope of glory. So it's not the sacrifices that you give that give you hope of salvation or forgiveness. No, it's in Jesus who lives in you. He's your hope, an eternal hope. And then that in Jesus alone is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom, all knowledge, it's in him alone. So what of the priests and the rabbis and the law and and sacrifices, prophets, mere shadows of whom Christ is the substance? They were just, just a glimmer of who God was through, and we see him revealed in Christ. In the Enduring Word commentary, right, he said this, 
everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered. This is the force of the verse with reference to the crucified and risen Jesus, the Messiah. Everything is in Christ, our Savior. Verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The treasure of wisdom and understanding or that knowledge in Jesus, it's needed to discern truth from error. And error, it often disguises itself as being plausible and persuasive. We can be persuaded to believe it. It's effective. It's amazing how effective uh, words or a slick video presentation can be to change the way that we think or to make us question things that we thought we knew. Just because something's spoken with conviction, though, doesn't mean that it's worth believing. Those in the early church, they were faced with believing Jews who would use the law to say, well, yes, Jesus is the promised Messiah, but you also must be circumcised. Like, that's, that's a really important part of being one of God's people. And some of the early believers fell for that. They didn't realize that to, return, to be circumcised was that was a sign that God gave Abraham that he was keeping the covenant that he had made. And so people thought, well, I want to please God. And here's this mature believer telling me that this is good for me to do. It's a good step of faith to be circumcised. And so to, to please that person, they would do that. And it's like, well, Jesus was circumcised. You think you're better than Jesus? And I can imagine a new believer just kind of wilting under that and feeling a bit condemned. Like, oh, well, yeah, Jesus was circumcised, and, and, and I don't think I'm better than him. And, and so they were being manipulated and deceived that through circumcision, you were more pleasing to God than if you weren't. And guess what happened when this new believer became circumcised? What became a really big deal to him? Well, that other people should do the same that they too needed to be circumcised. It's very important. And they began to trot, trot that out as a way to please God. Well, if you haven't done that, then you're going to have an issue with God when that's not what the scriptures say at all. So proud in his flesh, self-righteous, began a departure from the faith when he came to Jesus at the beginning. Then there were those who claimed it was a sin to be circumcised after the law. Right, you have the other, the other side saying, oh, no, no, it, it was wrong. and you, No one should do that. No one should be under the law. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Um, as you receive Jesus, you are to continue walking him. Jesus did not go around saying people must be circumcised. He never said that. You believe in him, you trust in him, you follow him, and you keep following him. You keep obeying him. But you don't he came to us by grace. It's not like because we did something, he came to us. Well, all we did was sin. He came to save us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7:19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, 
but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And what are his commandments? 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And if you have done these, you have done very well. These are the commands. Paul had never seen these believers, but he says, I'm with you in spirit. He was united with them through faith in Jesus, and he rejoiced at this great report. He had heard a good report of them, that they were in order. They were not out of order, like one like Corinthian church, that they were, uh, they were using the spiritual gifts, and, but, and they were, when they received communion, they were getting drunk. There, were a lot of, there was a lot of disorder in that church. But he says, I've heard you guys, you're in order, you're doing things the right way. Your faith is steadfast in Christ, and as you've received doctrinally and by example, keep walking in Jesus. Keep following him. And he alludes to a tree being rooted in the ground, established and fruitful, also a building on a firm foundation. He uses these two metaphors to show what our lives resemble as children of God. How do we build? By repenting, putting off sin. By faith, offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God in obedience and faith. Please turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Here you have two different examples of growth and being built up, being edified in the faith. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes... Desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's a time for celebration when a child is weaned from mother's milk to eating solid food. But no matter how old we grow or how much we know, we are always, as newborn babes, to desire the milk of the Word of God. We need that. The, the milk is all a child needs, a baby needs to grow. It has all the nutrients and everything that the baby needs for bones and and good eyesight, and healthy skin, and to develop, that's all the child needs. And for us, we only need the Word of God to instruct, and to strengthen, and to build us up. We don't need to go outside of the Bible, or away from Christ, to find that really nutritious supplement that's going to help us. It's all in Christ and in His Word. And if an infant is not eating or losing weight, it's a, a sign of some sort of illness or something's wrong. If your child is three months old and just lost a kilo, you'd be like, wow, something seems amiss. And you would go to the doctor, right? And in the same way, if we have no hunger to read or apply the scripture, if there's things other than the Bible that really have our interest and in, we're not in the scripture and we have no desire for it because we kind of moved on. Like there's other things that are really the deeper stuff, the better stuff. That's where the Colossians were, because we, there was all there was the Gnostics 
who are saying, well, you need to have this experience and you need to have this revelation. And if here, you, you, you got to look at this. This is really compelling. But they were moving away from the gospel and from Christ. So listening to sermons and podcasts or reading books by pastors and Christian authors, they're, they're fine, they're, but they're not substitutes for you reading the word of God yourself. You need to do that. It's because it's, God wants to speak to you. And he can use a pastor to speak to you. He can use uh, a video presentation to speak to you. But in the word, you and him, he'll speak when we come before him to hear him. God's desire is for us to grow and mature, to be involved in the worship and the service of God, like the priests in the tabernacle, but not offering the incense or the blood of animals, but to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him that we're going to serve him, and we're seeking him. We want to do his will, and we're going to be faithful wherever he plants us, that we want to be his faithful servants. So established in the faith as we have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. It's no burden to abide in Christ and to be used by him. Verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Paul warns the believers in Coloss not to become victims of scams designed to cheat and divert them from following Christ through philosophy, deceit, traditions of men, and the principles of the world. So any religious practice, anything that places demands or expectations on you that Jesus Christ is not putting upon you, that will rob you of the blessings, the fruitfulness, and the rest that Jesus has for you, that he is for you. And the world can put a lot of demands upon us, has a lot, or Christians can have expectations that we feel we must live up to. The world places a lot of emphasis on self-esteem, whereas the scripture says we are to esteem God and to deny self. The aesthetics, they, they were punishing their bodies in a hope to reach God, to have a re revelation of God. The Gnostics claim to have secret knowledge and revelation of him and that we need things beyond scripture or what angels could reveal to know God instead of just the scriptures. And there were time-honored traditions to which God gives no honor. We can even be cheated by good things when they become a substitute for a relationship with the Lord. Um, there's a lot of good ministries, parachurch Ministries, that would be a Christian ministry that operates independent of a church that's, that says they are there to support believers um, that have a particular area of focus like evangelism or parenting, apologetics. And a lot of these do great work. And there's nothing wrong with believers working together for a, a good purpose for the glory of God. But those cannot replace Christ. They can't replace Christ in your life. Jesus is the one who makes you complete. We can find these uh, like-minded folks who, have, who share, let's say, a, a certain emphasis 
that they find really important, uh, which is a scriptural emphasis. And we find a connection there and think now we're fulfilled. But really, it's in Jesus, not in that superficial passing connection. We have everything we need in Jesus because we are complete in him. And this is like mind-blowing when you get that. Like, I am complete in Jesus. It's not like you complete me. No, we are complete in Jesus. I think a lot of people grow restless and bored in church when it's church activities which become our focus rather than thanksgiving and serving unto Christ. And so church itself becomes a bit, or church activity becomes a downer because we're hoping that it, it, it ticks that box of that need we have of fulfillment and purpose that's only in Jesus. And we can get caught up in things that catch our interest because we don't realize we have everything in Christ. There was a, a few years ago, it was 2005 actually, I was going through like, wow, it was quite a while ago. Um, I went to Seattle, Washington to take part in this evangelism boot camp. Sounds fun, right? Oh, it, it, was, it was fun. It was interesting. So it was people from all over the states that would, we went to, uh, I think it was called the Bumber Shoot. If anyone's from Seattle, you can let me know if I'm wrong, but that's cool. But it was good to see people. It was challenging, praying, uh, doing some street witnessing, some, some street preaching. It was cool to see ways that different people share their faith. And, and I remember one time we were gathering and praying, and, and there was a participant who said something. And the, re, the fact that I can remember it, I think the Lord wanted me to say this, is he's like, you know what, guys? This is church for me. This is church for me. This is like where I feel I fit. This is, you know, my church doesn't do anything like this, and we need to do more. And uh, so, so because of his viewpoint, it's kind of, it, so what did he do? He saved up all his money to go to as many boot camps as possible. And he didn't have regular fellowship in between boot camps because he looked to this thing or this outlet for him where he could feel fulfilled and satisfied, not realizing that he's complete in Christ. And, and Jesus loves sleepy believers too. And that he could be evangelizing wherever he is because his connection to Christ and to God doesn't depend on what people around him do or don't do didn't matter about their perspective or their mindset or, oh, it's kind of a dead church. Well, you be part of Jesus who's alive. You serve him the way that he has put upon your heart in obedience to him, led by the Spirit. And when we do that, we'll be united and actually moving as a cohesive, healthy body. But if hands only want to be with hands, it's not an effective body. It is great to be among people. You know, you meet someone who has that, that, a really similar, like-minded view, and it is encouraging. Where somebody, I remember God put Australia, the east side of Australia, in my heart, and, and I thought that was strange. And then I read the story of Gladys Aylward, and she had, God had put China heavy on her heart. And I instantly, this woman who was born, I don't know, you know, 70 years before me or 50 years before me, there was a connection there because I'm like, wow, I can get that. Even with Abraham, God had called him to go to another country. All right, there's a connection. But 
that's not my sense of purpose. My purpose is in Christ because he's bigger than a purpose. He's my life. He's our life, and we're complete in him, lacking nothing. You lack nothing in Christ. In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If we find ourselves empty or lacking, it's not because other people aren't doing enough. It's not because you don't know enough or you need to do more. It's because you need to realize that you are complete in Jesus. If you are in Christ, renew your faith in him as at the beginning, he will sort you out. He will direct you. He's the one who's given us words he is the one who's given us his spirit. He is able to communicate. He can communicate that truth to you. The thing where you sense lack in your life, it can only be met in Christ because we're complete in him. The things we think we can find in another church or a better preacher or by our circumstances changing, that's in Jesus. And that's not to say that the preacher can't mature a bit and grow up. Um... I love that. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Do you believe this? Even when you feel like that's impossible, when you feel drifting and unfulfilled, when we realize that we're complete in Jesus, instead of looking to receive, we're thankful to abide because we're in him, and he is in us. The interesting thing is, if we are in Christ, we are also part of a body. And a body needs the other parts too. Right? The foot needs the leg to be connected to the torso, which is connected to the head. And we're, we all have different places in the body where God will use us. So people who say, well, I'm complete in Jesus and don't need anyone. You're not understanding what this passage is saying. We are in Christ, and he's made us part of a body. So in being connected to him, we are united with one another through faith in Jesus. So that's the way we're going to grow, is to be in fellowship with believers, to be in communion with our Savior, to do our part, which may be different from someone else's part. That's okay. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The Gnostics said there's secret knowledge required to know God. The legalists claimed there were requirements for salvation beyond faith in Christ. Yes, trust in Christ, but you also have to do this and do that. You need to keep the law. When we're born again, we are made temples of the Holy Spirit, not made with hands. And God lives within us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. After being born again, we are washed clean. And God does this when we're justified by faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit, he comes into our lives. We're baptized into the church, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Paul alludes to baptism with water as a picture of us being dead in sins and then rising out of the water, alive to God, a new creature by faith. Now, when you're circumcised, there's a physical uh, proof of that. And when you're baptized in water, uh, you're baptized, or well, actually baptized into the family of God through the Spirit, there is a visible effect in your life because now you're a new creation. God's dwelling in you. And we receive Christ, it says, through faith in the working of God. So when you heard that you need to trust in Christ to be saved and to go to heaven, you prayed and sought the Lord, believing in the work of God that you could not see, that you couldn't physically see, but it was happening. You were justified through faith in Christ. And so Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things I've commanded with you, commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So we're baptized into the body of Christ through faith in him. And then we are also baptized in water, in identification. Now, could you please turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4? Because there's an application here. I think sometimes baptism we look at as an event, like a historical event on the calendar. It's like, I was baptized on this day in this place, by this person, maybe you can remember that. Um, But it's not just a box to tick, like I've repented and I've been baptized. Okay, I'm good. That's not what it's about. Look at what it says here, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It's a strange thing, isn't it? That baptism is not the end of obedience, but it's actually a new beginning of obedience to God. Walking in a new way walking in the way that pleases God because we've been baptized into the family of God spiritually. So we're baptized in water in obedience and that signifies, wow, I'm a new person. It's not baptism that saves you. It's Jesus who does that. But having been baptized, we are to live in the way that pleases him. Fill with the Spirit. And as we're filled with the Spirit, we're also called to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And receiving this baptism is no different than when you are asking to be born again. When you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I want to be a child of God. I trust in what Jesus did, how he died and he rose from the dead. We be- you know that you were born again when you prayed that because God did a work in your life. The Holy Spirit came into you. Now, there's a lot of uh, teachings and practices about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Some are put off by that because it is put forth as a complex, and there are things done that are not according to Scripture. But if the fruit of the Spirit is viable today, well, the gifts of the Spirit also are necessary. And you see it in the life of Paul, for instance. He's going, breathing out threats and murders against the church. Jesus meets him on the road. He's blinded. He goes to Damascus. Three days later, Ananias comes and lays hands on him. 
prays that he be filled with the Spirit, something like scales falls from his eyes, and then what did he do? He ate some food, was baptized with water, but he went straight into the synagogue and boldly proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. God gave him the gift of teaching. That's the way that it was manifested in his life initially. So the baptism with the Spirit, where the Spirit comes upon us to be his witnesses, you see that in Acts chapter 2 with Peter and the apostles, the other disciples. There were about 120 of them. And also Paul and right down the line. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus said that. In Acts 1, Jesus said being baptized with the Holy Spirit empowers us to be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere, right? Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, when the people said they were struck to the heart about what Peter had said, they said, what shall we do? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So if God, if you've responded to the call of Christ, then this call is for you. This promise is for you. So this promise of baptism with the Holy Spirit is just like the promise for salvation. It's offered by God's grace. And if we'll humble ourselves and ask in faith, we will receive as surely as we do his salvation. Now, I'm happy to pray with anyone to this end, but you don't need me. You have Jesus. You are complete in him. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The scripture says, to him who has, more will be given. And I think this is appropriate in this case. And let's, everything that God's given us, let us use for his glory. Verse 13, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, trying, triumphing over them in it. Before we trusted in Jesus, our, our hearts were beating and our lungs were breathing, but we were spiritually dead in sins. We were cut off from God and headed for hell, for eternity, um, and even those who had been physically circumcised were cut off from God because their sin had separated them from God. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. And under law, there was no promise of eternal salvation. There was a promise of blessing in the land, but when you read through it, there's nothing about heaven. There's nothing about eternity. He talked about them having their land for generations, but it's not like when Christ came and has given us a new covenant that's an eternal one where he has now gone to, to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may also be. That city in the heavens not made with hands. That's what Abraham was looking for. He didn't see it, but that's who we look to, Jesus. I love this. John 1, 16 and 17. 
of Jesus. It says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. You can't just have a little Jesus. You have the fullness. If you have him, you have all of him and you are complete in him. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A new thing was ushered in when Jesus came. Grace and truth. God has always been gracious. God has always been truth. But we have been able to receive this in a new way, in receiving Jesus as Savior. He's provided salvation for sinners. By grace through faith, we were born again. We're alive together with him. All of our trespasses forgiven. The things you feel guilty about, he's forgiven you those things when we repent. In Christ, our guilt is gone. The debt we owed has been paid through the blood of Jesus. It says there, God has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. God's law is good. God's law is righteous. We are not. We are contrary to that law, are we? Are we not? We are exposed by the law as idolaters, liars, blasphemers, adulterers, murderers, covetous. Like every point of the law, we have broken it. We're guilty of it. And the picture that Paul paints is the words written by Pilate above Jesus' head on the cross. It was an accusation written above him. Mark 15, 26, it says, And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. That's what they accused him of being. He says he's a king. We only have Caesar as our king. Now we say, oh, well, yeah. Why is that an accusation? Because we agree. But it's only partially true, right? Because he's more than just the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is above all. And in him all things consist. Everything was made by him and for him. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, it was not for his own sin, but for ours, the sins of the world. The law Jesus fulfilled were requirements written with the finger of God that we could not keep, that we have broken. We would be righteously condemned on every point. Jesus took it out of the way it was like the law was nailed to the cross and all the condemnation that came with it. And when Jesus died on the cross, the power of the law to condemn those who trust in him was stripped away forever. When he said it's finished, that's what was happening. One of the many things that Jesus accomplished. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Read it last night in my devotions. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made, us, made me free from the law of sin and death. The law brought the knowledge of sin. It also gave the devil a lot of ammunition that he could accuse us, right? Oh, you lied. You stole. You're deceptive. You deserve hell. We're like, well, yeah, true. And we can let that get us down. But having nailed the law to the cross, it's like taking that loaded magazine out of the gun or declawing and detoothing the lion that's roaring against you. Verse 15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
When a military commander won a notable victory in Rome, with the approval of the Senate, he could have a triumph. That's the word that's used here. And it was this massive parade in Rome, so you get to go to the, the, the main city. You would give a speech. If you're approved, you'd give a speech. You'd put on these special uh, purple garments, pay homage to the gods, and the procession would begin. And uh, everybody is just excited about this triumph. It's a huge festival. It's a great time of celebration. And before, before anyone came in, it was it, the first people that came in would be the captives, usually bound, and they'd be the buffest and strongest to show the people that had now been subdued by this mighty man. And so they'd have this long parade of these bound people walking through. Then you'd have the spoils of war, the gold, the silver, showing the wealth that you'd brought to the nation. And then you'd have the lictors that followed. They were like assistants, kind of like bodyguards. And, and finally, the star of the show. There would be the horses, the white horses, the chariot, and there the military commander would be. And he would have the laurel around his head. He'd hold the, that ivory scepter in his hand. And there'd be a slave holding a crown over his head, whispering in his ear, remember you are mortal. Remember you are mortal. When everyone is shouting his praises. Then behind him, as they're making their procession through, the troop and all of his soldiers would be behind, singing songs and praise. And... It's like Satan and his demons, they're, they're that spectacle. They've been disarmed, they've been bound, and they have to walk before the glory of the Lord. They have no ammunition anymore. They have no weapons as they once did because we're in Christ. It's Jesus who sits glorified and eternal. We are both his spoils of war and his troops, but we didn't even have to fight because he did the fighting for us. On this day, we remember and proclaim the death of Jesus on Calvary, how he's conquered sin and death, how he has nailed the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that condemned us, how he's disarmed principalities and powers. And when Jesus hung on that cross bleeding, he looked like he needed saving, but he was doing the job of a savior. It's easy for us to forget what Jesus has done and to forget that we're complete in him. We come to him broken and when we trust him, he makes us whole. Please turn to 2 Corinthians 2.14 and may you receive this encouragement to heart. We know that Jesus is has triumphed. He is a conqueror. He is worthy of much more than just a procession or a parade because the, that military victor, he had to give that robe back. He didn't get to keep the horses or the, the fancy chariot. And there was going to be another parade with another military commander who was going to go through those same streets at some point who maybe didn't even deserve it. And all of your glory would be forgotten. But not Jesus. He sits in glory undimmed for eternity. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 
and through us diffuses a fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. When you follow Jesus, he is leading you into triumph. And that's the, that is a triumphal, that's a glorious thing that we can celebrate him in. Not even just celebrating our deliverance, but him. He has accomplished it. He's taken that handwriting out of the way. He has made a way for us to know God, and we are complete in him. How awesome what Jesus has done. And that when you would hear the sounds of the troop as they were singing the praises of their commander, sometimes in jest because they didn't want him to get the evil eye, to get too lifted up. There's nothing evil in our Savior. He is altogether good. So why do we proclaim his death? Because it's the ultimate declaration of his love and his power, what he's accomplished for us, how he has triumphed over sin and the grave, how the devil was disarmed, the law that condemned us was nailed to the cross, how his blood atones for our sins, that we have a new life in him. And through, through him, his fra- through us, his fragrance is dis- displayed in this earth where other people go, wow, life unto life. So let's come to him today. Let's come to him as our conquering king like we did at the very beginning. When we just heard about Jesus, we didn't know as much about him as we know about now. But let's come in that simplicity to just bow before him and to thank him and to bless him. Not to gain a blessing from him, but to bless and glorify his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. That you always lead us in triumph in Christ. And Lord, we do not always feel triumphant. We sometimes, I sometimes feel very low. Thank you that you are the one who lifts our heads. You're the one who gives us life. You're the one who's taken away all the condemnation, the writing that was against us, that condemned us to hell, you have taken it away. It's no longer against us anymore because you are for us. And when you are for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from your love? Thank you, Lord, that you are great, that you have done everything for us and that we are complete in you. Lord, may we... Uh, give you everything, all that you deserve, holding nothing back, rejoicing to be your servants, thanking you for all things. So I pray as we remember the death of our Savior and even in, in the light of his resurrection, may we rejoice as we take of the bread and of the cup. Lord, help us to, to recognize your love and to praise you for all you've accomplished. Thank you, Lord, that we do not serve um, a, a Messiah that can't save, that's entombed somewhere, but you are risen, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.